If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew, Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 16, first book of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel, we'll be in chapter 16 this morning. Please follow along as I read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together once more. Our Father, we pray that you would make this hour now useful for your people. We pray that this hour would be good for each and every soul here, and that you would come now and speak to us through your word. We pray that what we know not, you would teach us, what we have not, you would give us, and what we are not, you would make us. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the past year or so, two major films have been released documenting the events surrounding the British evacuation of Dunkirk, which was a major military episode in World War II. Known as Operation Dynamo, the Dunkirk evacuation was the successful rescue of British troops from the beaches of Dunkirk in northern France during the early stages of the war. The drama surrounding the events of Dunkirk is hard to overstate. Nazi forces had swept across Western Europe blazing through the Netherlands and Belgium and had moved steadily into France. British forces had been sent several months prior to help defend France from Nazi invasion. But by May 21st, 1940, German forces had advanced with such force and determination that they had successfully cornered the British expeditionary force on the beaches of Dunkirk. 400,000 British troops were stranded with nowhere to run except into the open waters of the English Channel. And it was at this point that a strange thing happened that remains a mystery to this day. But on May 23rd, an order was given by senior German officials to halt the German advance. The reason behind this order is still unknown. But regardless of the reason, this gave the English Prime Minister Winston Churchill just enough time to hastily assemble a fleet of over 800 boats many of them owned by civilians, and to send them to the rescue of the British troops. By June 4th, 1940, 
Nearly 340,000 of the British soldiers had been rescued from the jaws of the Nazi machine. The successful evacuation at Dunkirk played a pivotal role in determining the outcome of World War II. But even at that point in the war, things still looked bleak. The Dunkirk represented a crucially successful operation. Winston Churchill still reminded the country in his speech to the House of Commons on June 4th that, quote, we must be careful not to assign to this deliverance the attributes of a victory. Wars are not won by evacuations. However, later on in that same speech, Churchill uttered the following words that have since been immortalized throughout history. He said this, We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. In my study at home on my desk where I prepare my messages, I have a small bust of Winston Churchill, and under it has words, we shall never surrender. Well, this quote came to define the resolve of Winston Churchill, the resolve of the British nation, and the resolve of the Allied powers to overcome the Nazi regime, to win the war, and to ensure the freedom of the world. When Winston Churchill uttered these words, the outcome was by no means secure. In fact, victory at that time looked unlikely. And yet these words galvanized and inspired a nation on the brink of despair and energized them to fight on. Now in Matthew 16 and in verse 18, we have the first reference to the church in the entire New Testament. In fact, Jesus, you might be surprised to know this, rarely mentioned the church. But here in this very first reference, Matthew 16, verse 18, he makes this extraordinary programmatic statement about the church that in many ways has become definitive for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. These words from the Lord himself envision a conflict that would rage from that point on until the end of the world. However, the outcome of this conflict between the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and between the gates of hell, unlike that of World War II in June of 1940, was utterly secure. When Jesus uttered his words in Matthew 16, 18, victory was certain. And the man who uttered these words was not a prime minister or a military official, but the Lord of glory who authored history from beginning to end. And it's these immortal words, the first ever recorded with respect to Jesus' church, that I wish for us to consider this morning on the one-year anniversary of Emmanuel Church. And my hope and prayer is that we, these words from the Lord Christ galvanize and inspire us in a way that is far more profound than what might be produced by any words uttered by Winston Churchill. And I hope that we too will be energized to fight on with a confidence that is far greater. I have four points this morning coming out of verse 18, and the first of them is this. Christ is the one who builds his church. Christ is the one who builds his church. Look again at verse 18 if you would. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. 
So I ask you, student of the Bible, who in this text is the active, effective agent? Matthew 16, verse 18. If you just look and track the various nouns and pronouns, which receives prominence? Which one is the active, effective agent in this text? Just look at the nouns with me. First, Peter is mentioned at the start of the verse. For all intents and purposes, he is passive. He is acted upon. He is acted in and through. Christ says, Peter, you're a rock. And I'm going to do things in you and upon you and through you. But see, Peter is not the primary actor, at least in this verse. There's also the church that's mentioned, which is this thing, this group being built. In this text, the church isn't said to really be doing anything. However, the church is acted upon. The church itself is built. Well, and then there are the gates of hell. And really, the only reason the gates of hell are mentioned is to show how ineffective they are in the face of Christ's purposes for his church. The only active and effective agent in this text is the Lord Jesus himself who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's the one who's doing stuff. He's the one who's building stuff. He's the one who's taking decisive action. He's the one who has victory over Satan. Well, there's two simple things I want you to see here in these words with respect to Christ's activity in building his church. First of all, we should recognize that the church belongs to Christ. The church belongs to Christ. There are certain Greek words, not many of them, but a few of them, that every Christian should know something about if they're in the way for any number of years. One of those Greek words is found in our text. It is ecclesia. Jesus here speaks of his ecclesia, that is his church. Well, what is ecclesia? What does that mean? Well, it's literally his called out assembly. That's what ecclesia means, a called out assembly. It comes from two Greek words that are put together, ek, which means out of or, or from, and kaleo, which means to call. Christ's ecclesia is his called out assembly. It's his tribe. It's his people. It's his church. And Jesus says, I'm going to do something. I'm going to build my ecclesia. Now, the Jews, if they read the Old Testament in Greek, would have been very familiar with the term ecclesia. This term has a, a, a very significant Old Testament background. It would have been a reference to the assembly of God's old covenant people, namely the Jewish nation gathered for worship, God's ethnic people, Israel. That was the ecclesia, or the Hebrew word would be kahal under the old covenant. But see, Jesus in this text wants to make a distinction. He's not talking about the ethnic Jewish people now. He's talking about his ecclesia. His called out assembly, his called out people. He's talking about his disciples, his followers, those who call upon his name. And for the first time recorded in the Bible, he refers to them as his ecclesia, his church. What do we need to see here? The church belongs to Jesus. The ecclesia of the new covenant belongs to Jesus. Some of the commentators observe that the way the word order is structured, the my before church is given emphasis and prominence. Jesus is trying to distinguish his ecclesia, his church, his people. Jesus looks at the church of the new covenant, and he looks at his church today, and he says, mine. 
The church belongs to no other individual or group of people. The church belongs to no denomination or institution. The church does not belong to the highest bidder. The church does not belong to the socially elite, nor does it belong to the poor and the oppressed. The church does not belong to the pope or to bishops or to megachurch pastors. The church does not belong to the king or to the emperor or to the party. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And she is said to be his very bride in Ephesians 5, and we must never forget it. Let me just say, as an aside, this has been a wonderfully pleasant and edifying weekend as we celebrate the anniversary of our church, and it's in every way appropriate that we do so. But make no mistake, this weekend is all about the Lord Jesus, and this particular local church belongs to him with all of its members and all of its money and all of its blessings and gifts. If we're part of the church, his ecclesia, that means that Jesus owns you and he owns me. He owns everything we have and everything we are, and what an unspeakable privilege that it is so. To be his flock, to be his people, to be his ecclesia. It's interesting, churches today, and we're not any different from this necessarily, but churches invest so much energy, even resources, in crafting their own like, brand, Use that term. A church might consult a marketing firm, and we're trying to craft our brand. And, and we have a brand. We have a logo. We even have T-shirts now. Okay? We have a website. But make no mistake, every true church of the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to the same brand. It's Jesus Limited. It's his trademark. It's his copyright. It's his ecclesia and his alone. Jesus looks at the church, and he says, mine Bought with my blood, she is my bride, my inheritance, my pride, and I will be glorified in my bride, the church. But there's a second thing we should see here under this first point, and that is that the secret to the church's success is found in the activity of Christ himself. Jesus doesn't just say the church is mine. He says, I'm going to do something with my church, and I'm going to build my church. That's an extraordinary statement in light of the circumstances. Things did not look very impressive from the vantage point of Matthew 16, verse 18. How big was Christ's ecclesia at that time? A little over a dozen or so? Even after his resurrection, before Pentecost, we're talking a little over 100 people maybe? Seems somewhat pathetic. A little bit far-fetched to be making this statement in Matthew 16, verse 18. But see, then Pentecost happens and 3,000 souls are added to his ecclesia in one day. And then the gospel begins to spread across the Mediterranean region, and Jews and Gentiles alike are being converted. And then the gospel spreads into Asia and Cappadocia. And then by the late 4th century, Jesus' ecclesia receives official patronage by the Roman Empire. The gospel spreads all across Europe and deeper into Asia. Today, the church of Jesus Christ is found on every continent on the globe. Scriptures are translated into hundreds of languages, hundreds of millions of people across the face of the earth profess faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how did all of this happen? It happened because the Lord Jesus has been very busy for the last 2,000 years. Listen, the Christian faith is not like some form of deism. Maybe you learned about deism in high school, and it's 
sort of crudest expression. It's the idea that God uh, created the world. He sort of set things in motion, but he doesn't actually intervene in human history. He sort of wound up the clock and off it went. God doesn't intervene. Humans now sort of control the scene. And some people assume that the Lord Jesus did his part. He came, he went to the cross, suffered, died, rose again. Now we do our part. That's absolutely wrong. The church is being built and has been built through the active intervention of Christ at every point. He has been building his church in a myriad of ways. First of all, maybe most obviously, by saving people. And he told us he would do this. John 10, verse 16 says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is like uh, the proverbial shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one, and he's still doing that today. I'm praying he does that this morning, seeking his sheep and bringing them into his flock and saving them and uniting them to himself. He's doing that even now. He's also active in building his church by forming local churches and drawing people into a community of God's people. 1 Peter 2.5 says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. People gather, they're just stones. Someone's building them and forming them and crafting them together to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, we considered this this morning, is active in raising up laborers and sending them out into the harvest. He said, Matthew 9, 37 and 38, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Does he say next, so you men need to found a seminary. You're the original board of trustees and you're gonna have to put together a curriculum. No, he says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There is not a true missionary or a true pastor, or a true church planter on the field today who was not supernaturally, divinely sent and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That could be expressed in a number of different ways. But he's the one who raises up laborers. He's the one who sends them out into his harvest. It's his direct intervention. The Lord Jesus is also building his church by giving gifts to his church. Ephesians 4, verse 11, and he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, gave the prophets, gave the evangelists, gave the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. How do you think spiritual gifts come to exist in the church? The Lord Jesus himself supplies them. And he supplies the office bearers. He supplies pastor teachers. We're praying that the Lord would raise up in our midst the plurality of elders. What are we asking him to do? To actually give to us the gift of pastors, teachers, and that's one of the ways he's building up his church in this day and age, and certainly by interceding for his people. Hebrews 7, verse 25, consequently, he can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ builds his church through interceding for his people. The church is built by the active working and the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ himself. Sinners are saved by Jesus. Local churches are built by Jesus. Satan is thwarted by Jesus. Missionaries are sent by Jesus. People are sanctified by Jesus. Christians grow in grace because of Jesus. Christians persevere and get to heaven because of Jesus. Jesus builds his church. He says, the church is mine, and I am the one 
who builds it. Now, secondly, more briefly, Christ builds his church with fallible men and women. Christ builds his church with fallible men and women. Look again at the text, if you would, beginning in verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I'm not going to be able to address and satisfy every curiosity we may have about the meaning of these verses, but I simply want to focus on the very obvious point, and that is that Christ is pleased to build his church with fallible men and women. Let's just look at Peter for a moment. Now, perhaps you're familiar with some of the controversies surrounding the interpretation of this verse. Christ says, Peter, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. If you're not familiar, let me briefly catch you up to speed. Uh, in uh, Roman Catholic interpretation of this text, uh, this is seen as the sort of foundational text establishing the office of the papacy, the pope, and the succession of popes. Peter seemed to be the very first one, and after him there would be established the succession of popes that will have this signal place of authority in the church. And this is the text usually that a Roman Catholic is going to go to first to establish that point. And there has risen up in response to this an interpretation among some Protestants, some Reformed thinkers. And actually that's not at all what Jesus is saying when he says, on this rock I will build my church. The rock is not Peter so much as it is his confession of the faith found in verse 16. So it's this, this great confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this confession you've made, Peter, this is the rock upon which my church will be built. Well, I don't think that either interpretation is really fair to the text. There's no reason to conclude that the Lord Jesus is founding any sort of peculiar office like the papacy that's going to be continued in perpetuity in this great long succession. That's simply not in the text. That's reading light years into the text. But similarly, uh, I don't think the text will bear the weight of the interpretation that says, well, well Peter's not the rock, even though Peter means rock, uh, but rather it is this, this confession that he's made. That's just not what the text says. You are Peter, Petros, and on this Petra, this rock, I will build my church. So how do we understand the text? Well, I think Peter is understood here simply to be foundational to the beginning of the New Testament church. That's all. Is that so far-fetched a, a notion? Seems to be clearly what Jesus is saying, and I, I don't think it's very far-fetched, especially not if you take into account Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, which we considered together several months ago, where there the apostle Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles were given this significant foundational place. They were the foundation upon which the church of Jesus Christ was built, and Christ himself was seen to be the cornerstone. 
As Protestants, we don't need to object to the notion that the early apostles played a foundational role in the building up of the church. Literally, they were the first Christians. And more than that, they were the primary instruments Christ used to build the church. And no apostle was more prominent in the church's beginning days than Peter. Just read the first half of the book of Acts. And Jesus called it here in this text. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So we see Peter is identified as this rock, this instrument the Lord would use to build his church. Now, if you know the New Testament well, you may be thinking, Peter, not my first choice. The guy doesn't really know how to keep his mouth shut. He's impulsive, he's rash, he's a bit of a hothead, he's got a massive ego. He denies the Lord, for goodness sake, three times at that. He's rather a disappointment. It's interesting. Jesus gives him the name Peter, which means rock. But you sort of get the feeling from reading the Gospels that if you were just to to blow on the guy, he would fall right over. It's no surprise that when Satan comes to attack Jesus' disciples, he targets Peter in particular. He's going to pick off the weakling. He says, I'm going to get him, and I want to sift him like wheat, the Scriptures say. If you read on, actually, Matthew 16, after this great confession of faith that Peter makes, just a few verses later, he's given another name. The Lord Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. See, Peter had the nerve to rebuke the Lord and to tell him, you better not go to the cross. You better not die. I don't want to hear any talk about this. Peter, the rock upon which the church was built. Well, what is my point here? It is Jesus' will. He is pleased to build his church with fallible men and women. This is the rock the Lord Jesus has chosen. And I contend that in so doing, Jesus was setting a pattern for how he would build his church from then forward. It has always been his way to use fallible men and women to build his church. Sinners, misfits, and failures people with conditions and complexes, people who have pasts, people who have baggage, people with struggles and trials, broken people, needy people, weak people. It has always been the Lord's way to build his church with fallible men and women. And listen, it pleases Christ to work through such men and women. This is how he wants to do it. It's not like he got the last pick in the draft. He handpicked Peter. And from the very beginning, he told him, I will make you a fisher of men. Peter, this great failure, this man with all these shameful things about him, all these failures, all these sins, all of this in his background and in his makeup, and he's the one that the Lord singles out upon which he'll build his church. Well, in so doing, I believe the Lord is setting a paradigm to use fallible men and women in the building up of his church. And this has been true throughout every age of the church's existence. Who are some of your theological heroes? Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, Amy Carmichael. Look a little more closely. They'll all disappoint you. They all had feet of clay. I had a professor who was fond of saying, Jesus Christ is the only superhero in church history. The Lord is pleased to use fallible men and women, and it's been true throughout the church's existence. It's true today. And brothers and sisters, it's true of this church. If this church is to carry on any meaningful ministry, it will be through the means, through the instrumentation of fallible men and women. Thirdly now, consider with me the third point. Christ builds his church 
in a context of sin and death. Christ builds his church in a context of sin and death. Looking again at our verse, verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. That phrase translated the gates of hell in the ESV is more literally translated the gates of Hades. That phrase, the, the gates of Hades, is not exactly equivalent to maybe what's in our minds when we think the gates of hell. It has a significant Old Testament background, probably best understood generally as the realm of the dead. The gates of Hades, the realm of the dead, will not prevail against the church. And some have tried to make much out of the different meanings that could be given if the text is rendered gates of hell or gates of Hades. They argue that if the text is rendered gates of hell, which is the incorrect rendering, the idea is that the church will overcome satanic opposition. If it's understood to mean the gates of Hades, that is the realm of the dead, then the text is understood more to mean that Jesus' church, his ecclesia, will overcome death. Uh, death will not hold them. They will overcome death. And that would be resonant with Jesus' words in John eleven twenty five: whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Well, narrowly speaking, it's probably this latter point that Jesus has in his mind. But to make too sharp of a distinction between the two, gates of hell, gates of Hades, probably misses the point. If we should understand the phrase, the gates of Hades, to refer to the realm of death, we should not necessarily limit the idea narrowly simply to death, as in the day we die. I believe it's perfectly acceptable to read in death and sin and the activity of Satan and darkness and demonic activity. After all, Satan's kingdom, doesn't it work through sin and death? Aren't those the primary instruments that he uses to accomplish his purposes? So what's Jesus saying? He's saying, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, that realm of sin and death and darkness, will not overcome the church. Not just in the sense that believers will rise again at the last day to everlasting life, but that now, in the present, they will not be overcome, they will not be swallowed up by sin and death and by the schemes of Satan. They will experience them. They will have to endure them. They will very likely be hurt by them, but they will not finally be overcome by them. Jesus is not talking narrowly about the day that we die. God's people in the present experience sin and death, and the church itself is said to be built in a context of sin and death. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uh, ignorant or naive about this passage in Matthew 16, verse 18. This is not triumphant Christian living. That's sort of how this text is often used. Christ said, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's just going to be a walk in the park because Christ is on our side. That's not the idea at all. The church is going to experience the crippling effects of sin and death in this age. The church will have to constantly fight against division and false doctrine. At times, wolves will come in not sparing the flock. Christians themselves are going to struggle with besetting sins, and some are going to fall in harmful ways that bring reproach upon Christ and his church. And some uh, disciples will entirely fall away. And Satan will attack the church, and he'll seek to undermine it at every turn. Many of the church's leaders will prove to be disappointing. God's people will struggle, and they will experience trial and and some will even be killed for their faith. And many will have days in which they fight against doubts and fears and anxieties on every side. And the faith of God's people will be refined as through fire. 
Christ's will is to build his church in a context of sin and death. Now, this should not cause us to fear, but it should cause us to count the costs. We are not chipper Christian triumphalists. We are sober-minded sojourners and soldiers who recognize it will be a bloody conflict and the gates of Hades will do their worst before the end. But brothers and sisters, take heart because of my fourth point. The fourth point from this text, Christ and his church will ultimately prevail. Christ and his church will ultimately prevail. I will build my church, the Lord says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. True, the church is going to be built on the backs of fallible men and women, men like Peter. And yes, the gates of Hades will rage. But through the activity and intervention of Christ himself, the church will have the victory. Despite the many failures and sins and disappointments among God's people, Christ will not fail to build his church. You look at God's people in any given local church, and if you get to know them well, if you get to know us well, God's people in any particular local church, you'll conclude this is no dream team. We're not the Golden State Warriors. We're more like the Orlando Magic, okay? The church is full of people. Every local church is full of people who are weak and needy, people who are misfits, people who struggle with sin, people with all sorts of various hardships. We're not an impressive bunch of people. Someone asked me in, in retrospect on this last year, what's, what's one of the things the Lord has been teaching you in the last year at Emmanuel Church? And this has come to me again and again. All of God's people, from the least to the greatest, from the most immature to the most mature, to the newest Christian to the most seasoned saint, all of God's people are needy. We're all needy. That's true of every single one of God's people. And that's not a commentary on this particular local church that we're just a particularly needy group of people, but all of God's people are needy. We're all weak, and we're all vulnerable. We're all unimpressive. And listen, I'm not saying anything other than what the Apostle Paul says himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There he says, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. The Apostle just has carte blanche to insult you, so just embrace it and thank him for it. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Not wise, not powerful, not of noble birth, but foolish, weak, Low, despised, that's us. Fallible, weak, sinful men and women, and Christ is building his church with us. He's having victory over the gates of Hades through us. Do you realize that you, Christian, are meant to be a cosmic spectacle of grace? The effect that, that Paul is going for in 1 Corinthians 1 is that people are going to look at the church and they're going to say, you know, Jane... Not, the, not the, the sharpest uh, tool in the drawer. And you know what? She has quite a past. And um, not the most impressive individual I've ever met. 
But do you know that she started this nonprofit in the name of Jesus Christ has been helping refugees or sex traffic victims or something like that? Do you know John? Not the most impressive guy, but, but look, look what he's doing. Look what God is doing through him. Look what the grace of God can do when it gets a hold of a man or a woman. You're meant to be a spectacle. People are supposed to say how low and weak and despised and small and insignificant the individual is. But how great the grace of God is when it works through an individual. This is so that no one may boast, but that the Lord Jesus would get all glory. I love this perspective because it means we have nothing to boast about. And Christ gets all the glory. But it gets better. Christ builds his church with fallible men and women, yes. But he also overcomes sin and death in the process. The gates of Hades rage against the church, but the church cannot ultimately fall and cannot finally fail because Christ is stronger than sin and death. And just as the church is built through the activity of Christ, so the church will prevail solely because of Christ. Christ will have the victory. He will ultimately prevail despite the failings of his people and the raging of the gates of Hades. In closing, I have just three very brief words of application I wish to share with you. Then we'll be done. We'll sing and we'll observe communion together. Three points of application from this text. First of all, my fellow believer and church member, Christ is building his church and it is his will it is his good pleasure to do it through fallible men and women like you and like me. I just encourage you to embrace that. We are the instruments Christ is using to build his church. And the knowledge of this truth should engender, on the one hand, profound humility, and on the other hand, powerful motivation. Profound humility in that it's all about Christ, we have no room to boast. We're merely instruments, nothing to boast about. We're a bunch of nobodies who at best are tools in the hand of Christ. And that ought to engender in us profound humility. I was talking to a pastor in the area this week. And he didn't mean anything by this. He was, just, I think, trying to say something kind and encouraging. But it was just interesting the way he chose to put this. He said, you know, we're so encouraged by what's going on at Emmanuel Church. You know, it seems like some good things are happening there. And uh, it's just a real testament to the attitude you all have taken, to your careful study and preparation, and how much you've really worked at this. Well, listen, especially you members of Emmanuel Church, if anyone says something like that to you, be sure to set the record straight. If any fruit or any good thing comes from this local church, it is all a testament to the grace and kindness and mercy of Jesus Christ. We are not a testament to human ingenuity. Any fruit that we bear is to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it ever be written over the door of this church, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. May Christ be glorified, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, in the church. May we have nothing to boast about. This should engender profound humility, but it should also engender powerful motivation. The Lord Christ... The one who builds his ecclesia. He's using us to do it. What a glorious privilege. Christ is building his church 
through you, my brother or sister, with all your sins and failings and all that makes you ashamed and all your weaknesses and disorders and shortcomings, these are the people that Christ chooses to use to build his church, and that should be a source of profound motivation. So many Christians can be so mopey. I just really have nothing to offer. I'm just, I'm just kind of a nobody. Yeah, that's exactly right. Not many of you strong, noble, Chose the foolish things, the weak things, the despised things. You're right, you have nothing to offer or contribute. But wait till the grace of Christ gets a hold of you and works in you and through you. Don't you want to know what that feels like? Well, the Lord Jesus holds out to us grace whereby he can use us in his. So I encourage you, my brother or sister, get busy in the kingdom of God. Call upon him for his grace and embrace that he's pleased to use fallible men and women like us. Second point of application. Because the church is built in a context of sin and death, don't be surprised when you encounter the same in the church. The hard fact is the gates of Hades are at work against the church. And we shouldn't be naively alarmed whenever we see the effects of sin and death at work in the church. And we shouldn't be naively alarmed when we see sin and death at work in our own hearts. Christ's church is built in a context of sin and death. There's going to be heartache. There's going to be disappointment. There are going to be setbacks. We should expect nothing less. We're in a bloody conflict. Some people think church life is simply smooth sailing, and as soon as they encounter unpleasantness or hardship, they assume that glory has left the temple. However, we should know better. Christ's church will not go unmolested by sin and death even while the church is being built. Remember, we're not Christian triumphalists. We're sober-minded sojourners and soldiers who fight alongside of Christ for the triumph of the church. The third and final point of application, and then I'll be done. We should live and work knowing that Christ will prevail and the church will be built. Boundless optimism. Boundless optimism hope. There should be no mistaking where the current is taking us. There should be no confusion over which direction we're headed. It's no mystery how this story ends. Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And brothers and sisters, that should affect the way we live. It should affect the way we work. It should affect the way we serve, the way we love, the way we give, the way we fight sin, the way we read our Bibles, the way we train our children and grandchildren. And the way we worship, it should affect everything. The final outcome is secure, and we should live like it. Can you imagine? It would be one thing if the outcome were in abeyance. Christ is going to endeavor to build his church. We're not sure how it's going to turn out. Well, who would go to the mission field if that was the status quo? Who would plant a church? Who would evangelize their neighbors? Who would give large amounts of money to kingdom purposes? Who would give large amounts of time to kingdom enterprises? But that's not the state of things, brothers and sisters. The outcome is secure and Christ will prevail and he will build his church and we should live like it. And what if we did this more and more living as though we're on the winning side? As if Christ really will build his church and sin and death will not have the final victory over us. Well, may we endeavor to live like that because it's true. Christ is building his church, and the outcome is secure. And I say that to everyone this morning. 
There's no question where the current of history is moving. Christ will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know how this story ends. And that is a source of boundless optimism and hope and encouragement for all those who are Christ and part of his ecclesia. But if you're a rebel against Christ and an enemy of Christ, it's only cause for fear and dread. Are you part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? His special people, his called out assembly. The wonderful thing is, from the moment the Lord Jesus made this promise till today, till even now, Christ has been drawing more and more people into his ecclesia, into his church, into his called out assembly. And it's his pleasure, it's his goodwill that you too would be drawn in to his people, the church. If you would come in repentance and faith and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord, your Savior, your Captain, the one who is building the church, he will be pleased to have you. He's building his church and he is willing and able to save you and to draw you into that number. And what is true of the rest of us will be true of you. Sin and death will not have the victory over you. The gates of hell will not overcome the church. And if you are part of Christ's people, if he's your savior, if he's your Lord, the outcome is secure. And you will be with him in paradise for all eternity, enjoying everlasting life along with the rest of his called out people. I urge you, come this day, embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, believe upon him, and he will make you part of his sheep, his fold, his people. Let's pray together. Our Father, we recognize that we as your people have far greater cause to be hopeful, optimistic, confident in your purposes, so much more so than the British people 80 years ago when Winston Churchill made his speech. And yet, Lord, so often we don't act like it. We act as though the outcome is, is still yet to be determined. But we pray that each one of us who are your people would take heart today. That you are building your church. You're pleased to do it through fallible men and women like us. You're pleased to do it even in a context of a fallen world and in a context of sin and death and the opposition of Satan. And the outcome is secure. You will finally prevail. And we, through your great grace, will prevail along with you as your people, as your church. We pray that you would press this truth upon our hearts now and that you would press in on those who are not yet part of your flock, your fold, your people, your church. May you go after the one, even now, and draw them into your ecclesia, into your church, and make them yours forevermore that they too might prevail alongside the Lord Jesus Christ over sin and death. Would you do this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.